All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to the exchange. If you sit in the front row, you're like, ooh, I, I noticed something different. These chairs are cushioned, huh? Um, well, we can't really make up our minds yet. There's some cushioned ones, black ones, brown. We're trying to get them all cushioned, so hopefully soon that will happen. Um, hey, welcome. So glad you guys are here. Uh, do me a favor. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and Luke chapter 10. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Luke chapter 10. Please turn there. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. But yes, yeah, 2 Timothy 2, Luke chapter 10. It is so good to see you guys this morning. Um, let me give you a little reminder. So next week, we are having service here, same time, the 22nd at 10.30. Um, it'll kind of have some Christmassy elements to it. But our Christmas Eve service is going to be on Tuesday night at 6 p.m. So we will be here. Come early for some hot chocolate and a photo booth and some fun stuff for some kids. But 5.30, we will, or 6 o'clock is service. Come at 5.30, come hang with us. Uh, we'll be here. I'm looking so forward to our just Christmas Eve service and gathering together with you guys. And the Lord's going to do a lot with that. So looking really forward to that. Um, let me kind of explain where we're at today, what we're doing as a church community, what our hope is. And I know you guys like know this uh, week after week, but we want to walk through this. So we're doing a series right now on the spiritual disciplines. Um, some call them the spiritual practices. Some call them the ways of grace. You can call them whatever you want, but we're looking basically at spiritual formation, spiritual formation, and if you don't know how we've defined that and how I think a lot of people define that as being formed into the image, being formed by the Spirit into the likeness of Jesus through timeless practices and disciplines. So we're basically trying to look at throughout just church history. We're joined together with men and women who've taken on certain practices, taken on certain disciplines, that we're asking God's Spirit use these practices to make us internally more like Jesus. So we want to be with Jesus we want to become like Jesus, and we want to do what Jesus did. That is our hope. That is our prayer. Our prayer is that we would actually know Jesus, walk with him, be with him. We'd become like him and do what he did. And so we're doing this series on spiritual formation, and I really hope this has been helpful for you guys. I hope you've been practicing what we've been talking about. This is probably the most practical series, or as we walk through the Bible, I know that sometimes it can be like, here's who we are, our identity in Christ, which is so beautiful, but maybe we never get to the question of, okay, how? How do we live this out? How do we change? How do we actually see God produce fruit in our lives? And that are the, that, that's kind of the question we're trying to answer. And so um, we've talked about this, but I want to remind you, we're kind of looking at how everyone is formed spiritually. Everyone. You're either becoming more and more like Jesus or less and less like Jesus. There really is no neutral ground. I mean, Revelation talks about, Jesus talks about you're either for him or against him. You're either hot or you're cold. There's not this idea of like, I just stayed neutral, I remain neutral. You're either becoming more and more like Jesus or less and less like Jesus. And so there is really this idea of intentional spiritual formation or unintentional spiritual formation. Unintentional is you just kind of wake up, go about your daily life, and you have no practices, no disciplines, no habits that really change you or mold you into the image of Christ. Intentional is saying we're going to take on what the Word of God says. We're going to apply this. We're going to do this. We're going to live this out so we be and become more like Jesus. So here's what we did last week because today is kind of like part two. Last week, we looked at the practice of studying Scripture, the practice of studying Scripture. Um, and we really kind of looked at the big picture. So if you weren't here, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen, listen to it. We talked about what is the Bible, what is the Bible for, and can we really trust the Bible? Like, what is the Bible? What is this giant book that we have? 66 books, you know, 40 authors, three different languages. Like, we talked about that big picture. What is it for? And can we really trust it? How do we know that what we have today is what they had then? How do we know that this, it really is the authoritative word of God? And so I'd encourage you to go back to listen to that, explore that more. I hope uh, maybe you read some of the resources we recommended. I would just love for you to explore that more. Today, specifically, we do want to get very practical. All right, how do we read this book? How do we study this book? What's, what are some practical ways to read and study this book? You guys know, know the old adage, like, you can give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Or you can teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime. That's kind of what today is. We're trying to teach you how to fish. We want to teach you, here's how you can read the Bible. Here's how you can study. Here's how you can commune with God. Um, I really hope that this is so much more than just like, you'll hear some big terms. We'll try to define it in simple ways. But I hope this is so much more than just like, oh, I just got schooled today and feel like, no. I hope that you become just better listeners of God. 
just better, better people who wait on the Lord and let the Spirit lead and direct you as you read God's Word and have, let Him impress things onto your life. Um, the word disciple simply means a learner. Disciple just means a learner. The idea is we're a student. We're saying, Jesus, teach us your ways. We want to know you. So how do we actually study this book so we can do his ways? How can we actually study it in this way? So 2 Timothy 2, Luke 10, that's where we'll be at today. Um, please, again, turn there. I want to just read one verse. It's kind of like our diving board verse, and then we'll look at something more in depth in Luke 10. But it's 2 Timothy chapter 2, all right? We're going to read this encouragement uh, from Paul to Timothy, to the churches, for really our hope is that this would be our culture. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. One more time. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, to me, is rightly dividing the word of truth. Let's pray, and we'll look at this uh, more in depth. Father, we um, are so grateful for your word, it truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, I just ask that today, this book that maybe we've had for a long time, or maybe we're just brand new to this whole idea of following Jesus, and it's overwhelming. Jesus, please make it new to us. Please let us never begin to look at this book as an old family heirloom that just sits on the desk. God, make it alive to us. Let us really hear your very words as we give place for this book in our life. God, that we'd be formed into the image of Jesus. Give us a passion that can only come by your spirit, by your word that removes the veil over our eyes, that God, as we just read about you, as we look at your word, that there would be a new sense of who you are, a new sense of what you've said to us that we would desire to follow it all the days of our lives. We pray that for ourselves, for our children, for our children's children, that God, this, this, your word, your book would just direct us in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yesterday, I went online and I uh, got an online library card. I had a library card. I don't know where it went. So I'm like, let me just go online and get a library card. And I started scrolling through some books. And if you've ever been to a library, gone online and looked at virtual libraries, I mean, there's books on everything. I mean, even the most random topics, you're like, why is there a book on that topic? But you'll just find different genres or different books. You can go to music section. You can learn about plants and animals. You can read about spelunking and coconuts. I don't know, all these random books I was looking at. And it is interesting. I mean, just not just here in South Florida, but any library you go to. I mean, just books upon books upon books. Think about just all the books that are out there. Even my little office, I'm like, I have uh, way too many books. We just have so many books. And, and it is funny because when you read it, this is like people's hard work. This is their life work. Uh, for a lot of people, like one book and I just that, that uh, you know, all the time and attention it takes to write on a topic. And, and it's funny, you might find topics you're like, I can't believe someone spent like hundreds of hours writing about that, but it meant so much to them. Here's just a few books that um, are just definitely not relevant and outdated and I would not recommend uh, that I saw and I thought would be just kind of fun to go over. Number one, here's a book. Can we put the picture up? Um, Eating People is Wrong. I don't know if you know that. It's a, good, it's a good book. Some people need to know that. I saw that. I'm like, okay, that's true. The next book kind of contradicts this. Number two, um, How to Increase Your IQ by Eating Gifted Children. Maybe you've heard of that one. Uh, I think these two authors should have talked. Like, hey, it's wrong. Like, no, no, no. You can increase your IQ if you eat gifted. I know it doesn't mean what it, anyways. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Number three, the third book we'll put up here. It's children's books. Feelings and How to Destroy Them. I think that's a great child book. <laughs> can you imagine reading this? Like, oh, you feel sad? Well, let's destroy that ceiling. Feeling. A terrible way of, to parent. Um, this one's actually really handy. Uh, number four is toilet paper origami. Uh, it's a great, I think it's a great bathroom read, actually. I like this one. Um, get it? Anyways, all right. Number five, uh, how to make money in your spare time. The title is actually really good, but the cover, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but you're like, I think I might judge this book by its cover. <laughs> how to make money in your spare time. Uh, and I like number six, just because I like the old school cover. Uh, it's the manly art of knitting. And it's just a good, I like the picture. I'm like, you know, this is a good book. Um, and you can take those down. Here's why I put this up there. When I, when I look at this, and this is not, this is just a few silly books you'll find. I mean, there's hundreds, thousands, millions of books out there. And some of the books are honestly ridiculous kind of topics or thoughts, but this is their hard work. And here's the point. We will never remember 
We'll never, we'll lose the books. We'll forget about the authors. We'll forget about the books. There's so many books that have been destroyed throughout history we don't have anymore. I mean, we have book after book after book, people's life work. It just, it doesn't change anyone. It doesn't change anything. But here you and I have a book that has endured the test of time. You and I have a book that, as Jesus said, though heaven and earth will pass away, by no means will God's word pass away. That you and I have a book that will not return void, that what is written today will just continue on because it's the very breath of God as we described last week. Now, I do find this interesting because you can read different definitions of what is the Bible. We, we did that last week, but I, f- I came across this definition. The old Soviet uh, Union government kind of came out with a book on what is the Bible. It's called the Dictionary of Foreign Words, uh, the official Dictionary of Foreign Words, 1951. Here's what they wrote, the Bible. It's a collection of different legends, mutually contradictory and written at different times and full of historical errors issued by churches as a holy book. Uh, Obviously, we don't agree with this definition, but this is how people view the Bible. There's a lot of ways people view the Bible, and again, if you missed last week, please go back and listen to that big picture of what is the Bible, but there's a lot of criticism around this book that you and I study week after week that we give our lives to really not just seek to observe and interpret, but to apply and live out. But people still have a criticism of it. You might know this uh, French atheistic philosopher named Voltaire, who has, he's a brilliant guy, but he actually did make this claim. This was written down. He said this. Uh, he says, 100 years from now, or 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiqu- antiquarian curiosity seeker. Uh, he basically says, 100 years from now, he died, I think it was in 1778, and he's like, 100 years from my day, there won't be a Bible left. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but Ravi Zacharias writes in one of his books, he quotes Voltaire and says that later in his life, about 50 years after this, the European Bible Society actually purchased Voltaire's house and actually distributed Bibles from his house. I don't know if that's true, but I think that is the coolest story if that is. I mean, Ravi said it, so I'm like, it has to be true. Um, but either way, here's a guy claiming this book won't be around in 100 years. And it's still the number one selling book. As we talked about last week, number one selling book, least read book. And it's one of those things we want to talk about. Like, this book does and will and will always change lives, but um, how do we read it? You know, because I think a lot of people can use this book and twist it, and they've hurt people, and we've, different cultures and civilizations have done terrible things with this book. How you read it, how you interpret it, how you apply it is really just, it's key. You know, we can, we can read it and talk about all, we might be applying things that are not true. We might be living out things that we shouldn't be living out. We might be becoming more and more legalistic, more and more pharisaical, like Jesus talked about to the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. He's like, you read this book, but you miss the point. And so we want to talk about how do we read the Bible. So here's three things we're going to look at today, all right? Um, I, I want to break this down. We'll slow down, and I don't want to overwhelm you, and, and this will hopefully just kind of whet the appetite. I don't know what this phrase, but hopefully it'll make you hungrier for more. All right, so here's number one. Uh, we want to look at the why behind the how. So before we talk about how to read, we want to look at the why behind the how. Number two is the how, good hermeneutics and exegesis. Number three is the how, Lectio Divina. So I do want to give you two real practical ways to study the Bible. And we're going to call it just having good hermeneutics next to Jesus. We'll define, you're like, what are those terms? Don't worry about that. We'll get to that. We want to talk about a way that a lot of church fathers have kind of read the Bible throughout history. It's called Lectio Divina, that maybe you're already doing something very similar and just didn't have a way to, to kind of phrase it. But I think this is very helpful. That has been probably the most life-giving for me. So let's just talk about this. All right. Number one, the why behind the how. Because we can't just talk about how do, you, how do you read the Bible, but why do you read? Because that will change how you read. So please turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Um, I think this is probably the, you see within this man's life and heart what we see today in our own lives and our own hearts. So Luke 10, Luke chapter 10, we'll read verse 25, this interaction Jesus has with a very religious elite scholar. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. The why behind the how. Read verse 25 with me. It says, Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let's stop there. Uh, The word lawyer, I know when I'd read this as a kid, I'd read through, I'm like, what is this lawyer? This wasn't just like a lawyer like you and I would think of today. This was like a religious lawyer or religious scholar. This is is basically, you could say, possibly a Pharisee. This was a guy who gave his life to knowing the Bible, studying the Bible, interpreting the Bible, living out the Bible. So this guy most likely had the first five books of the Bible memorized. He probably actually had all 40 books of the Old Testament, what we, we would call the Old Testament. He probably had all of it memorized. 
is very common for lawyers to have all of it, for religious lawyers to have all of it memorized. I don't know if you've ever felt conviction for that. For me, it's like, oh, I've memorized three verses. And he's like, I have the whole Bible memorized. Um, that, that was him. But not just to have it, he actually knew the rabbis of their day, what they would say about it, their interpretation of it. So he could quote you the Bible and Rabbi so-and-so would say this. They're brilliant men, brilliant people who just dedicated their lives to this book. And he does ask a really good question. I mean, let's not just pass over that. He goes, teacher, and he's showing some respect. He's like, fellow rabbi, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a great question. Um, I hope, I, I would so hope that everyone asks themselves this question. I hope sooner or later everyone in life goes, yeah, what must I do to live forever? There is, I think, something within everyone that knows, hey, maybe there is more to life than eat, drink, have some money, die, leave stuff to your kids. Maybe there's more to life than that. Maybe there's something more beyond this moment, this time. I think we all feel within the, the heart of our hearts that when we die, we don't just cease to exist. It is interesting when you've talked to people who just know when you die, you just cease to exist. And when you talk to them, you're kind of going, are, do, are you like confident in that? Do you want to bank on that? Like, are you really sure because you heard your professor say, yeah, we're just matter, so you just kind of cease to exist? I mean, you know, that's just how it goes. Uh, for me, I want to take the word of someone who maybe faced death and can come back from death and say, hey, here's what happens after you die, and that's Jesus. I said, hey, I died and rose again, and let me, I just think it's a lot, I think in our heart of hearts, we kind of go, wow, a guy like Hitler just kills six million Jews, takes his own life, and that's it? No long-term judgment? Nothing? Just the end? I think for all of us, as Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says, God has placed eternity into the hearts of men. I think all of us have this eternal thought process. All of us want to live on. We're not really sure how to word that or quantify that, and I wish we would talk about this more. I wish people would be honest with this question more. I wish we'd actually think bigger. You know, hey, maybe if, if, if there is a God and God did make us, maybe he made us to live forever. You know, Daniel chapter 12 says, some will wake up to everlasting life, some will wake up to everlasting contempt or destruction. Even in the Old Testament, there's this thought of when you die, you wake up to eternity, but is there eternity with God in, in paradise or apart from God and not, not paradise? What we'd call hell? What we'd call separation from God? And he's asking a question I really hope more people would ask, that they think maybe there's something beyond this. But I don't know if his motives in asking are the purest, and we'll, we'll look why in a second. But he asked Jesus a question. And like any good rabbi, what does Jesus do? He answers with a question. Um, I love this. Luke 10, verse 26, Jesus said to him, I love this. There's a question. He goes, well, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? If you would look at that phrase, what is your reading of it? There's two questions Jesus asked back. What does the law say? And what is your reading of it? Now, if you have the ESV, which I think does a really good job of translating this well, he says, how do you read it? He goes, what is the law? How do you read it? This is the question. Uh, this is a very important question. How do you read the Bible? When you approach the Bible, before you even start reading the Bible, how do you read it? How do you approach it? How do you come across it and say, this is how I want to read this text? Um, this really is everything. Not just what are you reading, but how do you read it? So Jesus, I think, is asking a question we should all ask ourselves. So here's the man's answer. We'll keep going. Verse 27. He goes, well, he answered and said, Here's what I read. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6. And, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Ah! I don't know if you, when I read this, you just cringe, right? On the inside. Because I love you. He answers rightly. Goes Jesus is like, good job. You answered right. And he goes, okay. Well, let me just ask you another. Who is my neighbor? And this, all this kind of, it just does something to me. Um, if you're a parent, this should frustrate you because I feel like I live with this. We're like, Michael, Micah. I'll tell my son like one pretzel. He'll come back with a bag and start eating. I'm like, I said, I said one. He's like, yeah, it's one pretzel bag. I'm like, yeah, that's not even close to what I was. You know, we're just little mini lawyers in our heart of hearts. We like to just define things the way we want to define things. And he goes, well, who is my neighbor? And I really want you to feel the offensiveness of that. You know, when it says actually originally in verse 25, a lawyer came to Jesus testing him. That word testing is the same word that we would see used when Jesus was tested, tested by Satan in the wilderness. So it's really, he's not, he's not, he doesn't really want to know, from my understanding. It seems as if he's testing Jesus, say, well, what's going to be his answer? How can I find fault? How can I second guess this and question this? Does he really want to know what the Bible says? And does he really want to live out the Bible? I don't think so. Obviously, by the second question of, well, who is my neighbor? 
Here's what he's doing. I want you guys to hear this. Please don't miss this. He's depersonalizing the text. He's depersonalizing the concept of neighbor. He's diminishing it and lowering it. There's not a heart of whatever it says I want to submit to. The heart is, let me find a way to wiggle out of this. Let me find a way to redefine this. Let me find a way to say, who is my neighbor? I want to live the way I want to live, and let me find the way to use the Bible to justify my lifestyle. Do we still see that today? Absolutely. Let me define it the way, not that we want to know the true interpretation, not, not that we really want to know what's the heart of God here so we could submit to it and do it. That's how we should read it. What's the heart of God here so we can truly know the right interpretation so we can truly submit to it versus coming to it and saying, I want to force it to say something it doesn't say. And I want to twist it and I want to make it turn it into something that doesn't really say. So Jesus, just brilliantly, you know, rather than just kind of going to doctrine right away with this answer, and Jesus is not like, let's just open up Leviticus and define neighbor. He doesn't do that. He doesn't keep a Bible study. He gives him a story. Stories are powerful. We talked about how the Bible last week, like 44% of it, I think it was, is actually narrative. It's story. We learn so much through storytelling. So Jesus goes, hey, listen, there's a man. And he's walking from, I think, Jerusalem to Jericho. And it's like a 17-mile journey. And he goes on his way, or Jericho to Jerusalem. But I'll just, you know, do my best. But he's, he's walking on this journey. And then he gets robbed by thieves. And he gets beat up. He's left by the side of the road. And he goes, and a priest sees him, and he, he passes by. A Levite sees him, and he passes by. Then a Samaritan sees him. And he, he tends to his needs. And he, he helps him, and he puts him on his donkey, and he takes him to an inn, and he, he pays for the bill. He pays for the medical bill. He pays for the, the hospital bill, you could say. And Jesus says, now, which one of these three men do you think was his neighbor? And I want you to hear this because, again, he's a religious Jewish lawyer. Jesus brings up the word Samaritan. A Samaritan was a half-Jew, half-Gentile kind of hybrid mix in the Jews' minds. They try to take on Jewish culture and Jewish ways to some extent, but they also try to build their own temples. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They were as good as like dogs to them. They had a bad relationship together. But Jesus makes the hero of the story a Samaritan. I love how Jesus does that. I love how Jesus kind of like, it's offensive to that culture, but it's a beautiful story. He's going to, he goes, the Samaritan's the hero. And he's really just unearthing a lot of things within this guy's heart. And he goes, hey, which one do you think's the true neighbor? Which one do you think really loved appropriately? And the guy does answer and he goes, well, I guess the third. And what does Jesus say to him? Uh, if you want to read that with me or look back at that, Jesus simply says, yep. And he goes, you, you, verse 37, you go and do likewise. And that's the story. And that's the interaction. Now, I find this just fascinating, again, for so many reasons. Guys, I think if we're honest with ourselves, the why behind the how. It's like when I say, hey, let me teach you ways to read the Bible. It might not be helpful if your why is to wiggle out of it. It might not be helpful if you go, I want to know good you know, tools to read the Bible, but I'm really not going to live it out. But I'm really not. If that's your approach to it, then you're never going to interpret things correctly. First and foremost, you have to have this mindset of, I'm going to approach the Bible, this mindset of, I'm going to submit and obey it, even if it rubs me the wrong way, even if it frustrates me. Do we get that? If you approach the Bible with, well, if I happen to agree with it, then I will do it. Guess what that idea is? That makes you the final authority. That means you have more authority than the Bible. That means you're saying, I'm approaching the Bible as the final say-so. This part's inspired by God, this not inspired by God, and that's a very dangerous thing, again, because you made yourself the final authority, and if we just look at human history, whenever man's been the final authority, it hasn't really turned out well. I'm just trying to point out, is when I say, here's how to read the Bible, it's dangerous for me to give you tools if we don't first address the heart of it, which the heart of it is, do we have the desire to hear and go and do likewise? Jesus heard him. The first thing he says to me, he goes, good job, remember? He goes, oh, keep the law, love God, love my neighbor. Jesus said in verse 29 again, uh, he, or verse 28, he talks about, okay, do that and you will live. Good job, do that and you will live. Twice Jesus has to say, go and do likewise, or go do and you will live. And so again, if we approach it with this mindset of, if I don't like it, I'm not going to do it, then you will never, you will never interpret the Bible correctly. And there's no point in me even giving you point number two and point number three. That's why I'm starting with this. Do we get that? Yes? Here's how I wrote this down. Number one thought of this. You will never be able to interpret the text correctly if you are not willing to submit to the text wholeheartedly. All right? You'll never be able to interpret the text correctly if you aren't willing to submit to the text wholeheartedly. You will always have an skewed interpretation. That's just what's going to happen. That's this lawyer who gave his life to it and goes, I have the right answer, but I'm also completely wrong at the same time. So his interpretation was right and wrong. It's not that he's wrong. He's right, but he's also wrong. Jesus like, go and do likewise. So let's move on. Cool? Number one? Yeah. The why behind the how. All right, move on. Number two is this. Um, good hermeneutics and exegesis. This is how you read, huh? Okay. I'm going to try to do my best to just really 
kind of make this like uh, studying the Bible 101, all right? And I would encourage you to do more. There's more here than what I'm going to give you, absolutely. Here's why. Here's the verse context. It's 2 Timothy 2.15. We read it. But he basically says, study to show yourself approved to God. A workman does not need to be ashamed if he's rightly dividing the word of truth. The idea of workman in 2 Timothy 2 is like a field laborer. Like, the idea is studying the Bible, it's almost going to feel like you're working in the field sometimes. If you ever feel like, oh, Josiah, you just study the Bible, that's so easy. It's like, sometimes you're like, I can't leave my seat until there's, there's a correct, maybe, observation and interpretation and living it out and walking it out. It's actually like a lot of work to kind of go, I'm going to, like a field laborer, I'm going to sit down and kind of not move until the work is done. It does take a lot of discipline to study the Bible. I really do believe that. When I say number two, have good hermeneutics next to Jesus, I'm not trying to sound smart. A lot of them usually have, again, big, grandiose names or titles, but really simple meaning. Here's the simple definition of hermeneutics for us, biblically speaking. It's the science of interpretation. Hermeneutics is what we would call like the science of interpretation in a simple, simple way. Uh, you could, there's way longer definitions. But exegesis, you could say, would be drawing the meaning out of the text. Drawing the meaning out of the text. So not that I'm trying to put meaning into the text. That's called eisegesis. When you're leading into the text with meaning, you're coming to the Bible with, this is how I want to interpret it before you actually look at it and take it out. So exegesis would be, here's the text. I'm going to draw and pull the meaning out of it. Hermeneutics, you might say, is like the big picture of this, like the science of interpretation or studying the Bible, big picture. And hermeneutics might include, I'm going to know the historical context really well. I'm going to know the grammar really well. I'm going to know a lot of these key things. Even I, they would know, they kind of know everything and anything. You're going to look at church history, church doctrine. You're going to consider all of that hermeneutically. Like, you're going to consider all of that. But exegesis says, here's the text. I'm going to use certain principles to pull the meaning out of the text. You do need both. But I would just want to start with, like, the idea of, okay, here's the text before you. Imagine there's a text you're reading in the morning tomorrow, and how do you draw the meaning out? That's what we kind of want to start with. A guy named Gordon Fee, who's kind of like an expert in this stuff, and he writes a lot about interpretation, and here's what he says. All right, better definition. He says, what did the biblical author mean? Exegesis has to do both with what he said, the content itself, and why he said it at any given point, the literal context, the literary context. Furthermore, exegesis is primarily concerned with intentionality. What did the author intend his original readers to understand? That's essentially what exegesis is used for, going, what was Paul's original intent? What was Peter's? What was Solomon's? What is the original intent? What is he, what is he trying to communicate to his people? We, again, maybe don't have an agricultural background. We maybe don't have, a, most likely don't have an ancient Jewish background or Greek background. There are certain things we need to consider, not just read it from our American's perspective with our, in 2019 with our American lens. Let me just say this. I know myself include all of us approach the Bible. Not, no one approaches it from a blank state, slate. No one approaches the Bible perfectly in the sense of, I'm a blank slate. I, I don't have predetermined thoughts or ideas. I don't have influences, personal experiences, life influences. We do got to be honest with ourselves. All of those things will probably hinder or hurt how we interpret the text. You know, let me just say this. The problem's never with the text. It's with the interpreter. Okay, so let's just understand that. The problem's never with the text. It's usually the person interpreting it. And we have to be honest, like this person, this male, this female, this guy, this point of life, we all have certain biases possibly going into it. And we're trying to do our best to set those aside so we can best interpret. Is, it, is this making sense? We're trying to go, okay, I do want to put myself in this context, but I never fully will maybe be able to understand what it's like to live in the marketplace in Athens and Paul's there. So there's certain things we might, might miss out on in some ways. Um, let me give you another definition really quick. Uh, exegesis is the exposition or explanation of a text based on a careful objective analysis. The word exegesis literally means to lead out of. That means that the interpreter is led to his conclusions by following the text. Okay, so here's the idea. Let me just say this. This is not for religious elites, okay? If you're hearing this and going, okay, that's cool. That's cool for you. Like, that's your job. Like, that's good for you, but not for me. I don't need, I put this in layman. Listen, this is not for like, okay, now you're like second tier Christian if you, nope. This is just good for anyone who wants to, I want to know what does God say and how do I interpret that and how do I apply that to my life? This is good for everyone. 
This is necessary for all of us. Um, this is something that men and women have been doing, again, for a long time. This is not brand new, but uh, this is something we need to kind of take on. My encouragement to you is how do you take on this approach? And we'll get to the process in a second. Listen, a guy named Eugene Peterson who, who wrote the Message Bible, who kind of put that in his own words in some ways. He, it is a paraphrase. But here's what he says about this, all right? He says, exegesis, listen, is rigorous, disciplined, intellectual work. It rarely fears, feels spiritual. Uh, men and women, and I want you to hear this, men and women who are, as we say, into spirituality frequently gives exegesis any time, preferring to rely on inspiration and intuition. But the long and broad consensus, consensus in the community of God's people has always insisted on a vigorous and meticulous exegesis, giving or give long and close and learned attention to this text. All our masters in spirituality were and are master exegetes. All right? Do you want to be a master exegete in here? Master Jedi? Uh, here's the idea. He's like anyone. Anyone who, who really does take this serious is going to give time. It's careful reading. Let's just say that. It's careful reading. You're not just trying to read right before you go to work and like rush it and like, oh, I don't know what I, I, don't, I, don't know what I read. I don't know what it means. I'm not going to apply anything. We can't do that. That's what we do. I know that's how I have lived so much of my life. It's like, well, you're supposed to read the Bible, so I'm just going to read it and then just do whatever I'm doing. And like, none of it was really understood. None of it was memorized, comprehended, understood, interpreted correctly, or applied. And what's, what's the point then? All right, this is not the newspaper. We'll talk about that. Uh, but this is how we're to approach it. So let me just give you this. I, I'm reading a book I, I mentioned to you guys by, by John Ortberg, who just, it's been so practical, so helpful for me. And, and here's what he said. He goes, I have never known someone leading a spiritually transformed life who had not been deeply saturated in scripture. Let's just start there. It's so true. I've never met a spiritual giant who walks by faith, lives by faith, man or woman, who's like, oh my gosh, what are you reading right now? And it's like, what are you reading? <laughs> the Bible? <laughs> like, I, you've never, I've never came across that. They're students of the word. They give themselves over to it because, again, faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word of God. Those, I think, who love the most, you could say, not know the most, but they give themselves, you know, in Hosea 11, God says, my people are far from me because of their lack of knowledge. There's a side of this where that's why we want to study and know. We want to know God. We want to know God through his word, through the word he's given us. And so let's just talk really quick. Here's the process. This will not be super long or in-depth. This is somewhat simple and somewhat rich and complicated as well. So here's the idea. Here's like a process you could say, and some might add to this or take away from this, but here's the process of exegesis. Number one is simply observation. And I know you've heard this. Observation, what does the passage say? We'll talk about this. Number two is interpretation. What does the passage mean? What does the passage mean? Correlation, how does the passage relate to the rest of the Bible? And number four, application, how should this passage change my life? How will I apply this? So when approaching a text, let me just encourage you. Honestly, write this down. Here's a simple process. Some people call this inductive Bible study. Let's just talk about this. Um, when you approach a text, you're kind of going, okay, I'm, I'm observing the text. I would encourage you guys, when you have your text, ask a lot, ask a lot of questions. Read the text most likely more than once. Obviously, I'd say read it maybe a couple of times through. Get the big picture, hone in maybe on a couple of key thoughts or phrases. Ask some questions. What's the relationship like with the author to the people he's writing to? What's, he, what's his overall agenda in this book or in this passage? You know, ask just questions. You know, is this written in Hebrew and Greek? And what words, what phrases are used? Like, I would ask some questions. Just keep asking questions. You can't really ask enough que ask questions. What I'd say about observation, if you're like, that sounds like too much work, it is work. Yes, I get that. But I'd say just start writing in your journal. Like write, observe, put it in your own words. That's a great place to start. When I say observe the text, just, just write it in your own words. Like read it, read it, and just start writing next to it. That's a simple way of doing it. I like to write my Bible. I also have a journal, but I like to write my Bible because I don't know, it's right there. Is it, I don't know if there's a right, I would just say start writing. Start observing the text. All right, and we'll move on, but there's a lot more with that thought. It kind of leads into interpretation. What does the passage actually mean? And that's why you have to do step number one so well and so thoroughly, because you are trying to get the context. You're trying to understand that historical moment. You're trying to understand the culture moment. Is this a working class people? Is like what You're trying to understand the big picture of this. Let me just say this. When it comes to smaller issues, maybe in the New Testament, in the church, let me just say there are great men and women on both sides that differ on interpretation. Let me be really clear here. No one differs on the big things of Christianity. The, the idea is when, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, the sinless life of Jesus, the justification by the blood of Jesus for our sins, when it comes to the idea of like these big thoughts, 
that Jesus paid for the sin of the world by, like we all agree on those big things, the most important things. There comes with some smaller things that the church does disagree on, like interpretation matters. But can I say, it's okay if I go, you know what, after all my study and time, I kind of land here. Well, after all my study and time, I kind of land here. It's like, you know what, we're going to keep studying, we're going to keep learning, we're going to keep growing, I'm not going to condemn you right away. Like, I think the church needs to be careful in that. We love to sword fight. We love to take the Bible, which is the, sur- the sword of the word of God, like, yeah, yeah, like I hate that. I really do hate that. <laughs> I, it's okay to have a discussion and dialogue. It's okay to kind of say, hey, this is honestly where we land. It's okay to say, you know what, I'm still a student, I'm still a learner, I'm still going to give myself over to that specific subject or thought, that's okay. You know, I think we should always be learning, absolutely. But it's okay to say, hey, you know what, you can come on that conclusion, I lay on this conclusion, but guess what, you're my brother, my sister in Christ, and can we fellowship together? Yeah, I think we have the most important things in common, awesome, let's keep moving forward. I would love if we could do that more. I think we're so bad at that as a church. It's like, but you believe that, huh? It's like, yeah, someone believes something different than you, oh my goodness, okay, it's okay. We might have to, we might, but yes, put in the work, put in the work. And read people that might disagree with you. I've been probably doing that more the last six years of like reading people that don't think like I think. And it's, it, it's so good. It's so necessary. It's so helpful. I need to hear their side. I need to give thought to it. I don't need to just dismiss it without listening to it. Don't you think that's a problem in today's culture? Just in general, we dismiss someone without even listening to them. So we're trying to give place to this. Would you guys agree with me? You're like, no, I don't agree. It's like, okay. But we're just trying to do our best to interpret. Hey, use tools. There are some phenomenal tools. We live in just a crazy information age that is a huge blessing and a huge curse at the same time. I really think so. But we have like Logos Bible software. I thought it was Logos. Whatever. We have Logos Bible software. You can just read that, use that. There's some, so many great things. You don't even, ha- and you might think this is great, you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew because there's just so much out there. Like there's different texts you can read on, like, on Logos. It'll tell you the tense it was used and it'll tell you it, it, the neuter of it. will tell you everything you need to know. All right. So I'm not saying this is for the religious elites. Like, will it be helpful to learn that? Absolutely. But I'm saying you still can come to the right conclusions in your interpretation because there's so much out there. Can I, I'm going to move on from that. I'm going to say it does take work. Let me even say this. One, one, uh, guy said this, listen, he goes, I think there's a lot of things we do to prepare ourselves or should do to prepare ourselves to study scripture. Studying scripture can be hard work. Amen. There are details that we need to examine and there are many, many details that we need to uh, remember as we're going through the study of scripture as well as listening to the spirit of God. Can we not forget him? And so we need to prepare by having good tools. We need to prepare by having good material written by others. We need to prepare by praying and allowing the Holy Spirit, giving him freedom to work in our lives. You're going to be listening for, uh, you're gonna be listening for God's voice and listening for God's voice for your own life and then to pass that voice on to others as well. I think that is so good. So it's a hard work. Ob- observation, interpretation, correlation, it could be under, you know, interpret, like, I want to look at other passages, I want to see the b- big picture of this, the meta-narrative, what's the big picture storyline of the Bible of the sin and the fall and redemption, and I'm trying to see the big picture of this little passage as well. There's a lot of things you can do. And then lastly, obviously, like, application. And there, when it comes to application, there's a lot of ways that we could carry this out. There's a lot of ways you could apply this. So that we might come to a text 10 times and maybe have 10 different applications of that text, that's okay. That is, we're not interpreting differently. We're applying that to our life in that moment, in that time differently. That's why you might read through Ecclesiastes or a book and you go, that meant nothing to me. And you read it when you're suffering and you go, that meant everything to me. And, and it's, just, it's just different ways to approach it. I love how one person said this, and this is so good about interpretation and application. Listen to this. He says, rather, listen, rather than saying, I'm guilty of this, rather than saying there's one meaning but many applications, it's much more helpful to say something like this. There is one meaning but there are many partial summaries of that one meaning. And there are many more applications. The one, meaning of every, uh, the one meaning of every biblical passage is so complex that we should learn how to summarize it in many different ways and then apply it to our lives. I'll put it to you the way I think Solomon wrote it in, in Proverbs 25. He said, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. The idea in Proverbs chapter 2 I think is brilliant. He goes, God's truth, God's wisdom is like silver in a mountain. It's like treasure that's hidden. Listen, if there's treasure hidden or if there's silver in a mountain, you're going to be mining it out, working really hard to get some good stuff. And I feel like that's how we should approach, I want you to approach God's word as, yes, God is not trying to confuse you or trick you. And there's sometimes there's like beautiful, simple things we can live out and carry out. But sometimes you got to work at it and mine it. Like this is treasure in a mountain. This is hidden treasure. It'll take some exploring and time and energy. Would you agree? And that's how we view, we're trying to go to the passage and and pull out what is the meaning in this. Um, And here's the last thought. Richard Foster wrote, we come to the scriptures to be changed, not to amass information. 
please know this. If you come to go, oh, I learned this new cool terminology, it does not matter. We come to be changed. We come to amass information. Not to amass information, but to be changed. Again, it's put this way by Paul. He goes, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Yes, my people suffer because of a lack of a knowledge. But you know what? Sometimes you just get knowledge, and it just fills you with, fills you with pride. This knowledge should lead to transformation and ultimately to love. Amen? Number three, let me give you a real practical way. And please, please, if you're, I don't want to see, like, write this down. What do we need to do? This is so helpful, I, I found in my own life. There's something called Lectio Divina. And again, it's usually a, a weird phrase. Like, this is Latin. What is that? It simply means spiritual reading. Let's talk about Lectio Divina, spiritual reading. Um, this is not so much approaching the Bible with a technique as much as with a heart posture. And don't miss that. You're approaching the Bible with this heart posture of, I'm coming to listen, I'm coming to hear, I'm coming to receive, I'm not trying to complicate it, I'm not trying to get in the way of the text. God, would your spirit make these words alive to me? Let it jump off the pages and into my soul and my heart. Another way of saying it, the goal is not to just go through the scriptures, but let the scriptures go through you. Here's the idea biblically. It's Hebrews 4.12, and a verse we haven't used yet in these two weeks, but for the word of God, he says is what? It is living. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is living and powerful, and it, does, it just does something in this way. Here, here's what I, I, I want to say about this. It is interesting. Um, there's a, there is a difference between something being spoken and something being read. It is interesting to me how the Bible does say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and we read that. We read that, but it's saying, have ears to hear what the Spirit's saying. I think it's Samuel, when he approaches God, Samuel, young boy, what did, what did Eli, the priest, tell him? He says, okay, if you hear God's voice again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. There's a side of Lectio Divina where you're, that's the heart of it. You're saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Do you notice that the heart posture? I'm your servant, whatever you say. I'm listening. I'm your servant. Speak. You're approaching scriptures not just like some textbook, not just like, let me kind of dissect this like I would Homer in the Iliad. Not as like, no, you're approaching this much differently. This is a living book. You know, if you've ever you know, seen someone maybe approach like the newspaper, we can approach the Bible like we would the newspaper, like give me the facts and I want to leave. And that is not how we approach this book. If you've, let's just think back, married couples, let's think back. If you're single, hopefully, I don't know if this has happened, but we'll talk about it. Think back to the time you got a, a love letter, right? Think back to that time he or she wrote you that letter. You didn't just necessarily rush through it. Like you slow down, you read really carefully. You're like, why did they use that word? What does that word imply? Is that why they could have said that word, but they said this word, and it's re- you kind of you care about details because you want to know the author's heart of it. There's something where you want to keep it. There's something where you're like, I want to grasp it, and I don't want to let it go. And I'm not going to throw it away. I do have some letters still in the little box that I have because I also am a hoarder and keep everything. But I have some of those letters, and it's fun to just reread those. You're like, oh my gosh, like I, there's something exciting about that. I would say like that's how we approach the text, not this cold, dead book. It's a living book. It's where the Spirit of God wants to meet us. I love this thought in Genesis. It says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. I honestly believe that this book is called, it's like water to our soul, and I believe the Spirit of God hovers over this book in that same sense where it's like, God, speak to me. I want to hear from you. I want to receive from you. I'm coming with an expectant heart, and you cannot rush this. So here's what, let me just say this. Here's what one author said. Thomas Merton says, listen, Take every word as spoken to yourselves. When the word thunders against sin, think, God means my sins? (laughs) When it speaks of any duty, God intends me in this? Many put off scripture from themselves as if it only concerned those who lived in the time when it was written. But if you intend to profit by the word, bring it home to yourselves. A medicine will do no good unless it is applied. This is how we approach the Bible. Martin Luther said this about the Bible. Um, I was supposed to use it earlier, but I forgot. But he basically, I'm going to go back and read it because it's such a good quote. He says this about the Bible. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. That's the Bible. It's alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It chases me. It pursues me. It lays hold of me. There's something with this is a living book. So 
we're going to talk about this idea of Lectio Divina, which again is a Latin phrase, just means spiritual reading, and there's like five or six components. I'll show you those six components. Let me just say this. They're not steps. Please don't view it that way. Um, I love how someone described them as like movements to a dance. They might not be in order. They might be in order. You might have times where you're going back and forth between silence and reading or meditation or prayer, and there's going to be this back and forth kind of dance versus like, let me just do step one, step two, step three. Don't view it that way. I know I can view that way. I don't have dance moves or dance skills, but I heard when you once you get really good at it, like it just flows. This is the idea when you read the Bible, all right? <laughs> You're like, you don't have dance moves? I know, it's surprising, right? Um, but here's the idea. <laughs> uh, of like, here's the first, you could say, movement to this, and this is so key. The first one is what they say, silencio, all right? That's fun to say, silencio, silence, um, preparation. So let me say this, before you read the Bible, obviously, sit down, be quiet, prepare your heart for God to speak. You might pray a simple little prayer, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. You might say, have mercy on me. I'm a sinful man. You might take something from the scripture and just be, just be quiet, though. You're just quiet. I would say, I'd recommend like five to ten minutes. I tried doing this on Wednesday, and then what I did was I put my phone out on the table, and that was a terrible idea. Didn't ring. No text came through, but you're just like, uh, like, what is that? The whole point of this is to get away. I tried this also with a baby on my lap on like Tuesday, and that didn't work either. Um, the whole, you got to get away. You got to be silent. You got to be still. Uh, here's a thought, Psalm 46. I love this phrase. He says, God, my ears you have opened. My ears you have opened. That idea of even open, he's like, you dug them open. It's almost like you took a pickaxe and you got rid of all the junk so I could hear from you. Maybe I want you just to, when you approach the Bible, pray it like that. Like, God, remove the junk so I can actually hear from you again. I haven't heard from you in a while. God, remove the junk. God, take a pickaxe and just clear it out. James 1 talks about that. How we don't always hear from God. We're just filled with sin. We're filled with unconfessed sin. God, pick it out. Get rid of it. I'm here to hear from you. Uh, the next would be this. It's called lectio, which just means read, right? It just means read. So after you're quiet for a while, read. And let me just say this. You don't rush this. This is not you're reading, again, the newspaper. This is reflective reading. This is reading and slowing down. Here's the recommended idea if you want to take note of this. But I would say read it two to four times. Read it once all the way through, get, get, get the big picture, maybe reread it, but you're kind of slowing down even more. And you pause, and you might lean back, and you might lean forward, and you might read again, and you're just kind of reflectively reading. I would recommend maybe like two to 12 verses, it depends on the passage, maybe depends on the story if it's a narrative, depends, it might be a little bit longer for that sake, but just kind of have more reflective approach to it. So you're reading more reflectively. Again, when I say you cannot write, you really can't, just knowing my personality, and anyone can like this is the hardest for me is not rushing is to actually slow down. Dallas Willard called, he says, hurry is the greatest enemy of spiritual life. The greatest enemy of spiritual life, he said, was hurry. So you're kind of slowing down here in this. Again, you might read it twice, you might read it three times, four times, doesn't really matter, but you might at least, I'd say twice, just to kind of get the big picture and slow down a little bit. So it's more reflective in nature. Again, Eugene Peterson said this, reading is an immense gift, but only if the words are assimilated, taken into the soul, eaten, chewed, gnawed, received in unhurried delight. You're reading with delight. You're reading with, I can't wait to hear from God. This is different than how I, I've studied the Bible. There's a time and place to exegete a passage, and there's a time and place for like Lectio Divina, which is, I just cannot wait to hear. You hopefully get to the place where you can kind of intertwine the two, but y I think it's necessary to have this separate idea. So silence, reading. Number three is meditatio, the idea of meditate or reflect. We did a whole teaching on meditation, so I won't dive too much into this. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because I think this is so key. To If you want to memorize scripture better, start meditating on scripture. If you want to comprehend scripture better, start meditating on scripture. Psalm 119 says this, I'll meditate on your commandments commandments and fix my eyes on your ways. If you're like, I can never memorize any part of the Bible, I'll be like, slow down and meditate on it. Just chew over that passage. Um, one person said, meditation does not always remain bent over his pages. He often leans back and closes his eyes over a line he has been reading again, and its meaning spreads through his blood. It's a great definition, I think, of meditation. You don't just lean hunched over, but you go, oh my goodness. And you close your eyes and you're just like letting the Lord kind of produce that in you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a guy we like to talk about, he says, just as you do not analyze the words of someone you love, but accept them as they are said to you, accept the word of scripture and ponder it in your heart as Mary did. That is all, that is meditation. You're just pondering it in your heart. 
You're silent, you're reading, you're leaning forward, you lean back, you lean forward, you lean back, because you're thinking about the passage a little bit. And next, this idea of oratio or respond, pray. This is the next step where this might be back and forth. You go, oh my goodness. You read something, you, you be quiet, you think about it, and you go, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? God, would you take what you just said? And here's, let's talk through an example. I think I maybe mentioned this for meditation before, but when Jesus said to the disciples, peace I leave to you, peace I leave to you, when Paul starts an epistle and says, grace and peace I give you, grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ, how do we actually go, oh my gosh, the Lord Jesus Christ has given us grace and peace. God, and you're thinking this way, you're going, is that just for them? It can't be just for the church of Galatia. It has to be for us. And you're like th thinking about the text, and you're going, wait, so God, you left me grace and peace. Why isn't there grace and peace in my life? God, will you let me submit under grace and peace? In what area am I not submitting grace and peace? And you're quiet and you listen and you wait. And then you repray and say, okay, God, I'm gonna walk in grace and peace. And it's just like this constant engagement. It's this dance, if that's making sense. And this is, it slows you down. It's not about, I read for 15 minutes, get rid of a clock. It's not about that. This might be a 15 minute practice. It might be an hour. You might go, I had no idea, an hour flew by. I know it can happen like that. But that, that's part of the idea is this responding. And then there's this word contemplatio, which we say contemplation, which no, I don't think it's accurate. It's more the idea of rest. It means to now rest in it. You've read it. You've prayed over it. You've meditated on it. You've read it. You've prayed over it. you meditated on it. You're silent. You're silent. You're waiting for a response. And then you just contemplate. You reflect. And there's a side of this where you are still, like Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. The idea is like, okay, I'm just going to be still now before you. I like what one author said, uh, Ludwig Wittenstein. He says, you can't hear God speak to someone. I just had to say it like that. He says, you can't hear God speak to someone else. You can, you can hear him only if you are being addressed. So that he is, God, address me. Address me. This is a living book. Speak to me. This is your word. Help me understand that I'm part of this body of Christ, the bride of Christ, that what you said about the church applies to me because I'm part of the church. You're speaking to me. You're reflecting. You're still. And then lastly, I like this thought, but the idea was incarnatio. And the idea is incarnation. What does that mean? It's, uh, this is the idea. I'm going to embody the text. I'm going to embody and carry out the text. So like, what do you mean? John 1.1 1, 1 is so interesting, right? John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. We know John 1.14. He skips down. And he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a really interesting thought for so many reasons we have time for that, but he's like, the word of God is actually not just a word, it's a person. And it's also the very word and revelation of, of God to us. And this word was not just a concept, it was a person who actually took on human flesh and walked among us. And here's the idea of incarnation. The idea is like, God, what I'm reading, this word, let me embody it. So at the end, you're kind of praying and saying, okay, God, I read this today. How do I embody this today? Give me examples. That's a good example. Thank you, God. And you're going to do that example. It's like carrying that out. I don't know if this is making sense. I don't know if you, maybe you're like, I've been doing this my whole life. I know, isn't that cool? It doesn't mean you have to have like a, oh, I do Lectio Divina. Please don't do it. Don't say it like that. But there's this idea of just like, I want to just involve myself in this way. I just want to kind of be silent. I kind of want to read the text more reflectively. I kind of just want to meditate and then go back to reading and be quiet. And I want to pray and I want to give God room to speak and be more, you know, contemplative. I want to rest more in God. And you know what, God, I'm going to pray about embodying it and how do I walk and carry it out. Isn't this different than when you wake up and you read for five, ten minutes and you go to work and you're like, what the heck did I just read today? This is different than that. And I think, I think many of us live that way. And I get that. I've lived like that for a long time where you guys going to go, okay, I just got to read because I said I read and I can check off the box. But you're going, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be reflective. I'm going to invite the Spirit to speak. I'm going to take a deep breath and be quiet and be slow. Guys, here's, here's why this is so important. I've, you've talked to different Christians, and they'll tell you about something in their life. And it's hard. You go, oh, my gosh, like, this is a major sin issue in someone's life. And you want to, like, go, but don't you know the word of God says? And, like, I want to, you know, part of you wants, like, use the Bible, and we just want to, like, hit people. and abuse. I want to encourage people, listen, you get alone with the Holy Spirit. You read the Bible. You say, God, how do you want to apply this? Oh, it's not smart for me to sleep with my girlfriend. I didn't realize that. Okay, thank you, God. I'm going to care. Oh, God, I should love the person that I, that's my enemy. Okay, thank you, God. It's not just reading it and being like, yes, I agree. I agree it is wrong to sleep with before marriage. I agree it is wrong to, or it, I agree it is right to love my enemy. You're kind of, you know, you're going, I'm submitting myself to those truths. I've had time to pray over it, meditate on it. I've had time for the Holy Spirit to convict me and lead me, and I'm now going to incarnate, I'm now going to embody it in every way. Is this making sense? Guys, church, there is a difference between reading and agreeing with the text and really listening to the Spirit's move in your life and submit yourself to the Word of God. Don't just read and agree, but reflect and submit 
and carry out. Amen? This, there's a difference. So, yes, exegete a passage. I encourage you to do that. Give your time. If, there's, if you're like, I'm in Daniel 9. This is hard. Absolutely. Get, you know, some comment. That's great. But I'd say for the most part daily, I would love to see us kind of walk in this movement with the Spirit. So here's your practice and discipline because we have a practice and discipline of the week. So here's our practice and discipline. It's exactly what we talked about today. One is this. Go through a passage exegetically. And two, I'd love to see you go through a passage with Lectio Divina in mind. So this is how I want you to kind of go through a passage. You're going to do this in a study way. You're going to do this in a God speak to me way. Now we have time. This is actually a weekend where we take communion. This is a time where we say, God, your word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then we pierced the word through with nails and hung him on a cross. And he died for my sin. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Can we like slow down a little bit? Take away any distractions right now? I'm going to ask that you turn your Bible. If you have to use your phone, that's okay. But turn to 2 Corinthians 11 with me. 2 Corinthians 11. And we're actually going to give room for the Lord to kind of do this. If we could just like turn off one set of lights, because I know it can get too dark and it might be hard to read, but 2 Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 11. We're going to try to be still a little bit before the Lord, before we take communion. I'm going to ask that you guys take honestly. We'll, we're going we're gonna to kind of do this in a really summarized short way. Take 30 seconds and just be still and be quiet. Take 30 seconds, read anything, just be still, be quiet. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to play a little bit of worship as we do what we're about to do. So, bow your head, close your eyes, just be still, be quiet, take a deep breath, don't look around, don't be distracted. We're about to read the Bible, we're about to put ourselves under the text, so why don't you just be still and calm your heart for a few seconds. If you would, Look at 1 Corinthians, I said second, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, and I'm just going to have you guys, just read verse 23 through 26, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 26. Why don't you read again 1 Corinthians 11? Verse 23, a little more slowly this time. Slow down. Look for some words that just jump off the pages to you. Read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 26, a little bit slower. Father, we want to thank you for what Paul said here, that he received from the Lord. Received from the Lord. Father, we receive your word right now from you. We receive so much from you. Thank you, God, for all that you've given. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for the truth that you revealed to Paul at the moment of the Gospels that we read. Father, we thank you that you took the cup, you took the bread. As Eve took the fruit and cursed mankind, you took the cup and you redeemed mankind. Thank you, God, for what you took for us. Thank you for the cup. Thank you for taking the wrath of God on us on that cross. That your blood was shed so we could be forgiven. We give thanks. We give thanks to you now. God, we give thanks to you in this moment. God, we ask that communion, this time where we take the bread and the cup, would be a celebration of the death and of the life and of the resurrection of you, Jesus. That you lived a sinless life that, God, you died on a cross on our behalf. Jesus, we take this until you come. We are reminded of that truth. We take this, we eat this, we drink this till you come, Jesus. Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus. We cannot wait to take this with you again, new, for the first time in heaven. For the fact that we are practicing a meal we're going to be taking in eternity. We're practicing this small idea of how we will eat and drink again with our God, with our Savior who redeemed us. Let this small cup, let this small cracker remind us of the price you paid. Let it remind us of the meal we are going to have with you in heaven. God, we thank you. We invite you here. God, I ask that we would not eat and drink in an unworthy way, in a hypocritical way, 
that Jesus, we do want to confess sin. God, that maybe we've been giving time and place for things other than you. Take your rightful place. God, I ask that as we read your word, that you would speak, that we would listen, that God, it'd be words that it'd be like the first time we're hearing. It'd be a love letter we're searching out. We cannot wait to read the next thing. We cannot wait to contemplate, to reflect on it. We cannot wait to be still. So we thank you, Jesus. We invite you here, Jesus. Church, in a moment, we're going to pass out communion, but I do want to just say this. Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus, take, eat, drink, remember, celebrate. If you have not yet believed in Jesus, if you have not yet said, Jesus, I believe you are Lord, there's no need to take and eat. There's no need to drink. But if in this moment you say, Jesus, I receive you, I receive the free gift of salvation, take and eat. It's free. It's freely given. Freely God has given, freely receive. But don't take and eat this in an unworthy way. Don't do this without confessing some sin and saying, God, I want to be right with you. I would just encourage you guys as we pass out communion, pray some more. Be quiet some more. Celebrate some more. Give thanks like Jesus gave thanks that night. So we're going to pass out communion. When you are ready, eat and drink. And then we're just going to worship and we'll close with some thoughts. So they're going to pass out communion. Feel free to take, eat, and drink when you're ready after you prayed over the sacraments.